honestly, I think it's pretty incredible how much color variation you see in primates. Yeah. That kind of blows my mind. There's this guy who's researching, um, like, why animals are, like, colored the way mm -hmm. they are. And I think he's, like, focusing on, like, the zebra, of course, because they're, like... Yeah. They recently came out with a study that talked about that. The... Oh. The zebra stripes. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it has something to do. Maybe I'm wrong. It might have something to do with. I think it had something to do with the way the flies perceive them. And it like. Oh. Flying like they're the vision of the fly gets like confused so that it, it won't land on the black and white. What? So that, like it's a pretty cool experiment with it with horses and like putting the coat on versus not putting the coat on. Yeah. Oh, see. And they saw like less flies on the like zebra painted ones. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Of course, everybody goes to like, which predator is it that it helps them? Yeah. Here it from. says it's been called camouflage to confuse big predators, an identity signal to other zebras, a wearable air conditioner because of thermoregulation. But now some scientists believe that it is to ward off biting flies that might carry disease. Yeah. I need to start wearing zebra coats. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or zebra, not actual zebra coats, but like zebra Pattern printed coats. coats. <laughs> so maybe the mosquitoes won't get me. Oh, so here it is. So it's an optical illusion called a barber pole. Diagonal stripes appear to move up or down depending on which way the pole is rotating. Something similar could be happening as flies approach zebra stripes. From afar, it might interpret it as an, a gray object, but as it moves closer, the zebra's diagonal stripes may appear to be moving in false directions. As a result, the fly may think it's headed toward open space instead of landing. Or perhaps the sudden appearance of the stripes may overload the fly's vision and startle it into a buzzing stupor. Ah. That's so clever to look into that. I know. And they well, the way they did it is they put like pattern, zebra pattern coats on horses and measured that. So it's kind of cool. I think it's really oh, recent. I think cool. everybody this is sierra and this is matt and welcome to monkey business your favorite podcast about primates and phds our primate spotlight today is focused on a critically endangered species of primates called the yersin colobus monkey and i probably am pronouncing that wrong um, but it's more commonly known as the white-thighed colobus which is native to west africa in an area that covers six countries including benin the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Nigeria, Togo, and Cote d'Ivory. I think I might have said some of those wrong, but who knows. These monkeys have long, slender bodies compared to other colobus monkeys, and their coloration is both black and white. Their face specifically is surrounded with a thick ring of white fur, and it is much longer and much thicker around their cheeks and chin. It kind of looks like a beard without the mustache, and it I, it reminds me of like those old, uh, like whale hunting sailors. Yes, I could from... not agree more. <laughs> yeah, 
in a, a little bit of a sports reference, it honestly kind of looks like LeBron James too. He sometimes rocks the oh, yeah. uh, the beard without a mustache, but yep. yeah, that is exactly what I think about when I see it too. So, um, other than the white fur around their face, they also have a long white tail and uh, distinctive white patches on their thighs, which is probably where they get their common name from. I noticed in my research that sometimes there was uh, some conflicting information out there about this species. And originally, I wasn't sure why, but it turns out that a lot of the information out there about these guys is mixed up with the information about the king colobus monkey. Because apparently, until 1983, the white-thighed colobus were actually considered part of the king colobus monkey species, which forced me to have to sift through this kind of research. But once I realized that they're separate, it helped a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually just looked up the King Colobus monkey while you were saying that. And I definitely see the resemblance. That is, if the King Colobus monkey had some access to Rogaine, then they would look a lot like the white thigh Colobus. <laughs> you see, if you look at the King Colobus, they're so much more kind of like, I don't know how to say it politely, but they're a little bit more like they have a lot more thin fur. They look a little bit more mangy. So if they had some Rogaine, they'd look a lot more like the uh, white thigh colobus. So honestly, if I was the white thigh colobus, I would be a little bit offended that I was put into this species of king colobus for so long because quite honestly, I wouldn't want to be associated with anything that looked like that guy <laughs> I know, they're like uh, can't you tell i'm just that much prettier <laughs> <laughs> you're comparing me to that guy like come on why no i totally agree but although they are a distinct species they do share some similarities with the other colobus monkey um, for example all colobus monkeys have long fingers that form in the shape of a hook and they use these long fingers for grasping onto trees and branches and their thumbs on the other hand though are very short and they just look like small little nubs but the funny thing is that their feet has an opposable big toe so it's oh. almost like they compensated for their lack of thumb they're kind of like an upside down person in a way <laughs> so it sounds like their hands are and feet are perfectly adapted for that arboreal lifestyle and swinging from trees. I saw that they typically live in lowland forests, deciduous gallery forests, and savanna forests, which all consist of these large, tall trees. Although they are known to sometimes travel on the ground between tree patches, when they are in the savanna, they spend most of their time up top in the canopies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this species is also slightly sexual dimorphic, where the males weigh around 22 pounds and the females are slightly smaller at 18 and a half pounds. And that's American pounds, not British pounds. Yeah. We're probably going to be using a lot of American measurements, mostly because that's just how I think. But um, if you, you ever want to use the other Google ones, convert it. Yeah. Yeah. While we're talking. <laughs> If you're listening to our podcast while you're driving, we would recommend not doing that. But, you know, <laughs> so anyways, Sarah, though, so they're sexually dimorphic. But what about the infants? You know, I love hearing about those baby monkeys. Baby monkeys are the best. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, similar to other species of colobus, infant white-thighed colobus are born with an all-white coloration and their fur will slowly start to darken around three months of age. Oh. So cute, as usual. 
One unique fact about the colobus species, which is distinct from many of the other African monkeys, is that these guys lack cheek pouches. So cheek pouches are exactly what they sound like. They're these extra stretchy skin in the cheeks where monkeys can store things. You know, Sierra, I really want some cheek pouches. Why don't we have cheek pouches? I could put my wallet and my keys and um, <laughs> maybe a snack in the other. And then I'd never go hungry and I'd never lose my things. Yeah, but that's why we invented pockets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. But even regular pockets, I still lose things. If they were in my cheeks, I, I just think I would be better off. No, it's like uh, when you used to, I mean, you probably don't know this, but like when you used to put all of your stuff in your bra. Oh, totally. Like <laughs> I remember when I used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So let me tell you though, Sierra, you're going to warm up to the idea of cheek pockets eventually. So <laughs> just get some slimy money to people after you pull it out of your cheek. Pouch. I mean, here's the thing. It's their money now. I don't care if it's slimy. <laughs> so these colobus monkeys also have these large salivary glands, which would make my money extra slimy and a highly evolved stomach that specializes in breaking down cellulose. This is an important adaptation for these guys because their diet consists mainly of immature leaves and seeds. But sometimes when they want to add a little bit of spice into their life, uh, they'll occasionally eat fruits, <laughs> insects, and termite clay. Oh, yum. Termite clay, my fave. <laughs> I can't do this. I, I, feel, I feel like there is a common trend where primates that subsist mainly on leaves typically do not travel very far in a day since like the food that they have is just right around them and it probably has low energetic value. I mean, that's true. Can you blame them though? I know salads are good for me. I never eat them. But <laughs> when I do eat them, which is never, they give me no energy. That is for sure. But you're right. The white thigh colobus definitely follows this trend. They typically spend about 68% of their time resting, but this is partly because digesting leaves just takes so much longer compared to other food items. That makes sense. And Aside from all of this time resting, they spend a lot of their time eating as well, obviously, about 22% uh, to be exact. But when they have a break from their jam-packed schedule of eating and resting, <laughs> they spend some time traveling and socializing. And speaking of socializing, uh, white-thighed colobus have been observed living in a bunch of social group makeups that vary vastly in size. Some groups are as small as five individuals and some groups can be as large as 30. So their group composition is highly variable with some groups consisting of multiple males and multiple females while others might only have one male or all males. Do you know off the top of your head, Sierra, who typically leaves the group? First, to answer your questions, males emigrate out around the age of five, but I'm glad you asked because... They have some interesting encounters. They kind of tend to test out the waters a little bit. So when males are looking to join other groups, they briefly meet other groups, which they have several short and aggressive interactions with. And then during these interactions, they kind of decide whether or not which group they want to join. Do you know how they decide uh, which group they want to join? Uh, there's been some research into this, but obviously we can't talk to them and we can't know what they're thinking. So basically it seems like males are more likely to join other groups if they've already had some friends in that group. Patterns show they also tend to join groups with a more favorable female to male ratio. 
Yeah, some say bros before hoes, but the colobus says, why not both? No, right? Uh, that's that's true, yeah. I mean, alpha males rarely leave, but they do frequently participate in neighboring group incur- incursions to demonstrate their strength. These fantastic displays are usually an attempt to seduce and attract new females to leave a neighboring group and join the bigger, stronger males group. These higher ranking males are more likely to display than anyone else, probably to advertise their fighting ability and discourage any wannabe newcomers who might attempt a coup. Always got to be on guard from that potential mutiny. Now, unfortunately, all this intergroup mingling and migration does usually give way to one of the most shocking behaviors for non-primatologists to witness. That behavior is known as infanticide, and it is a rather common behavior amongst some primate species. We will discuss this topic in another episode, as there's a lot of psychological and evolutionary research that has examined it. But for now, just know that infanticide is when an adult will kill an infant of its own species. There are many theories that attempt to explain such a behavior, but like I said, these will be discussed in a later episode. I am actually going to read an abstract from one study in particular by Treshrub and Sikot that yeah. recorded this phenomena in a wild population. And they said, during a 13-month study period on four groups of the of colobus velerosus. Which are the white thigh colobus. Yes. At the Bobang Firma Monkey Sanctuary in Ghana, we recorded all instances of male aggression to infants and mothers with infants using focal animal and ad-lib sampling. Resident males did not attack infants, whereas new immigrant males who became high-ranking and those that immigrated as a part of an all-male band did. During this period, three cases of confirmed infanticide one case of likely infanticide and three suspected infanticides were attributed to new males. Not all new alpha males attacked infants, however. After a takeover in group B2, the new alpha male did not attack an eight-week-old infant. Some resident males aided females in infant defense but were not successful. These new cases and previously reported cases of infanticide seem to best fit predictions of sexual selection hypothesis. Infant attacks were performed by seemingly unrelated males who gained mating access to mothers after their infants died. Loss of a previous infant shortened the inner birth intervals of females. Male infants may have been targeted preferentially at this site which would support the eliminate a future sex rival hypothesis, although more cases are needed to reach a firm conclusion. Although this may seem like a pretty frightening life for a young monkey, it is important to keep it in perspective. These cases do happen, but there are also many cases in which infants survive to adulthood. And in some cases, other monkeys join in to actually protect the infants, even when they're not their own offspring. For example, there are very few aggressive interactions between females 
And although they do not form coalitions over food and they do not affiliate with each other as readily as females of other monkey species do, they have been seen to form short-term coalitions to protect infants. These short-term coalitions are just one way that females within a group can bond with other females, and it is also a way to protect infants so that they can grow up. Now, unfortunately, there hasn't been a ton of other research on this species, so this is all we have for you today. But as always, we do want to end the podcast with a the current status of these monkeys. Yeah, and unfortunately, like many other species, the white-thighed colobus is classified as critically endangered and is on the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Red List. It was listed as one of the world's 25 most endangered primate species in the IUCN's Primates in Peril 2020 report. According to this report, there are an estimated 1,500 individuals left in the world. Unregulated hunting and habitat loss due to deforestation are major threats to the survival of this species. Their habitats have decreased extensively over the last 30 years. In Ghana, logging, especially illegal logging, increased by 600% between 1995 and 2008. More than 50% of the protected areas and the forest reserves that contained white thigh colobus in the 70s can no longer sustain the species. More than 50% of protected forests in the Ivory Coast, Togo, and Benin have also been logged or have been converted to plantations for palm oil, cocoa oil, and rubber in the past 50 years. One final factor that has contributed to the decline of this primate population is the dramatic increase in human populations. Over the last 15 years, we have seen a 50% increase in population in the Ivory Coast alone. Unfortunately, the future is looking quite grim for this species, which only highlights that the change needs to start now. I could not agree more. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. I know it was a little bit of a disheartening episode towards the end, but I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your day. And as always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or if there's a species or topic that you want us to cover. As always, we want to give a special thanks to Oliver Eddy for sound production. This episode was written and directed by Matt Babb and Sierra Simmons. Until next week. Cue the outro.